Amen. I invite you to take out your Bibles and you can turn to Psalm 63. Please turn to Psalm 63. <clears throat> oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord of all being, there is one thing that deserves our greatest care, that calls forth our ardent desires. That is, that we may answer the great end for which we are made, to glorify you who has given us being, and to do all the good we can for our fellow men. Truly, life is not worth having if it not be improved for this noble purpose. Yet, Lord, how little is this the thought of mankind, most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for your glory or for the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches, honors, and pleasures of this life as if they suppose that wealth, greatness, merriment could make their immortal souls happy. But alas, what false delusive dreams are these, and how miserable before long will be those who sleep in them. For all our happiness consists in loving you and being holy as you are holy. Oh, may we never fall into the tempers and vanities, the sensuality and folly of the present world. It is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a vast empty nothingness. Time is a moment, a vapor, and all its enjoyments are empty bubbles, fleeting blasts of wind from which nothing satisfactory can be derived. Give us grace always to keep in covenant with you and to reject as delusion a great name here or hereafter, together with all sinful pleasures or profits, Help us to know continually that there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling of your purpose for us, apart from a life lived in and for the Son of your love. Father, we pray that as your word is preached this morning, that it would conform us to the image of Christ, that you would move in our hearts, open us up, remove any obstacles or barriers that would hold us back from engaging fully with your word. Lord, may we feel uh, deeply and smartingly uh, where your spirit convicts us of sin, of coldness, of apathy. 
Lord, may there be a great move and a great work of your spirit to do what only you can, to open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds. May you be glorified now as your word is proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I lost a couple days of sermon prep uh, earlier this week, uh, and so we are taking a short break from John for this Lord's Day, and we'll be looking at Psalm 63, uh, verses 1 to 7, a sermon that I had prepared for uh, just such an occasion. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can keep them turned to the 63rd Psalm. And uh, before we get into that, just wanted to comment here. One very unfortunate reality in our day is that deep devotion to God seems to have fallen on hard times. Many men especially feel that to display or to practice a rich, warm, devotional commitment to the Lord is essentially an effeminate endeavor. And granted, this isn't altogether without reason that they would view things this way. For if you turn on the average Christian radio station, you will not typically find a robustly masculine piety. And so many men conclude that if these squishy, overly romanticized expressions of devotion to God is what true devotion looks like, they want none of it. And so my hope is that this sermon would begin to bring a correction to this way of thinking. As always, we must aim to be biblical and not simply reactionary. Psalm 63 confronts us with something quite interesting. It is a deeply devotional psalm. And it is written by King David. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in the church... King David was a warrior king. Even before he became king, he was a captain in the army. He was a hero to the people. You may remember the song that was sung by the maidens in the land who would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Right? This is your champion, your warrior, the man who could single-handedly uh, take down legions. This was a man who had killed a giant, and as a teenager, even before he killed this giant in open combat, he said that he had killed lions and bears. Remember when he's trying to convince Saul to let him go face Goliath, he speaks of this, how he would confront a bear and a lion, and if he arose against me, David says, I caught him by his beard. I caught the lion by his beard and struck him and killed him. That is all to say, David was a man of action, a man of war, and he was a man after God's own heart. As we read Psalm 63 and see the deep, rich, experiential faith that David had, let us, let it correct our thinking if we have fallen into this error. Deep, heartfelt devotion to the Lord is not only something for women and soft men. Amen? But let us follow this Holy Spirit inspired of David, the musician, songwriter, giant slayer, warrior king, and man after God's own heart. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land 
where there is no water. Now, we don't know exactly when this was written. Uh, It could have been one of the times when David is fleeing for his life from King Saul, or later in life when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. The text doesn't tell us, but we see David is in the wilderness. He is in a desolate place, and he expresses his desire for God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He compares himself to a man dying of thirst in a desert. You can picture this man seeking, thirsting, longing after that which would quench and satisfy. Right? The man in the desert, his single-minded pursuit is to satisfy this most pressing desire uh, in this dry and weary land, searching for water when there is none. David says, this is my soul. My soul is parched, and I long for God. My soul thirsts for God. Earnestly do I seek him. Now, seeing as he wrote this psalm in the wilderness, it's quite possible that David was drawing from his own immediate experience. Perhaps it was David's physical thirst in the moment that reminded him of his spiritual thirst. Right? Not only his body, but his soul was thirsty. And his soul, he knew, thirsted for the living God. Now we'll talk more about this when we come to verse 6, but this is the type of practice that is recommended to us by the Puritans for helping us to set our minds on things above. It's what they referred to as occasional meditations. Now, an occasional meditation is where you have an occasion, you have something in your life, in your surroundings, and you use something in your current situation as a metaphor to help you reflect on the things of God. All right, so to give some practical examples, while you're washing the dishes, you could think on the reality that the Spirit of God is cleansing you of your sin so that you will be clean and spotless like your clean dishes. Or you could look up and see the sun shining through your open window, and you could remember that God had opened your heart, pulling back the blinds, so to speak, so that you now see the light of his Son, Jesus Christ. There are countless examples, occasional meditations, where we could use things in our everyday life or in our present experience to bring to mind things to meditate on, right? to bring our minds to things above, as David does here, writing in the wilderness. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in perhaps this dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Hear the heartfelt desire of the warrior king, the man after God's own heart. His desire is for deep fellowship with his creator, communion with his maker. And I think it's safe to say this is the burning and earnest desire of a man whose heart is ordered rightly. Consider the sin of idolatry. Idolatry of the heart is committed whenever we value, treasure, 
trust in or love something more than we love God. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And so the honor, reverence, trust, glory, and praise that God deserves must not be given to a substitute, must not be given to a rival, to another. And so when our hearts are rightly ordered, we see that God then will be uppermost in our affections. He will be on the throne of our heart, so to speak. So we see then that this longing after God, which David describes, should be seen as one of the marks of grace upon the soul. Now what does that mean? That's a big phrase. Now what do I mean by a mark of grace? What I mean is this. A mark of grace is a sign that someone has been truly converted. It is an indicator that someone truly knows God and has been born again. A mark of grace upon the soul is the kind of thing against which you may test yourself to see whether you are truly in the faith. Unbelievers do not thirst after God. Certainly they may find in themselves certain desires which no earthly thing can satisfy. That seems to be a nearly universal human experience. But the longing of the soul after satisfaction, right, the desire to be filled, is not the same thing as having true desire for God himself. Consider there are many things which could make unbelievers make a profession of faith in Christ. And they may really believe they are saved. All the while, the root of the matter is not in them. The devil can produce many counterfeits of saving graces. Right, so a fear of hell, even a desire for the joys of heaven, perhaps a dislike of the negative earthly consequences of sin, maybe a desire for the blessing of church community, perhaps a strong commitment to tradition or traditional values. None of these things are sure signs of grace. None of these things truly prove someone to be a Christian. They are no certain marks of grace. For in all of these things that we just listed here, a love of self could still be at the bottom. It is only the redeemed heart that can truly love God for God's own sake. To say and mean, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The redeemed heart says, as we sang from Psalm 16, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God is what we want. Could we weigh our desires in a balance? God on the one side and all other things on the other. The desire of the redeemed heart for God is tipping those scales. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord 
all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27, verse 4. And so this is one of the signs of the new birth, one of the signs of true conversion. When the Spirit gives us new hearts, we receive new desires. And so it will no longer be simply a love of self that will drive us. It will not merely be a fear of hell that sends us seeking for a savior, but it becomes a true deep-seated love for God. We then experience grief and sorrow over our sin, not just for the fear of judgment, but because we now recognize that we have sinned against God. That we have sinned against the God whom we now love more than anything else. The God we now desire to please with the entirety of our lives. So recognizing all of this to be true, what are we to do then if we find ourselves feeling largely apathetic to God? Right? Perhaps we've considered ourselves to be Christians. We've maybe said a prayer at one point in our lives, you know, asking Jesus into our hearts. But as we compare our hearts to this ideal that's been set before us, before us in Scripture, we may start thinking, you know, I'm not sure I've ever had that kind of longing for God. Perhaps we realize now that our repentance had been shallow. Perhaps we've been taking the grace of God for granted. Perhaps we've been flippant and casual in our approach to the Christian life. And we're thinking, I don't know that I've ever had that kind of true, deep desire for God. And now that worries me, right? Hearing that these are the marks of grace and I see very little of this evidence in my own heart. I want to follow God. I want to serve him. I want to experience what the psalmist describes here, but my own heart remains so cold that it grieves me. What do I do? Well, firstly, if this is you, I would seek to encourage you if you are experiencing true grief over your lovelessness for God, then that is actually a very good sign that the Spirit of God is working in you. This is a heart that is experiencing grief and sorrow for the right reasons. And even that sorrow of knowing you have offended the God you love, even that sorrow is an expression of the right kind of longing for God. So take heart. Secondly, we see from the scriptures that true saints, true believers, can and do go through deep and dark, dry seasons. Consider David as well. Writes in Psalm 40. says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So David tells in this psalm of God's gracious response to his prayer. But notice what he says about the trial. David says he had to wait. 
he had to wait patiently. And he describes the trouble he was waiting in as the pit of destruction, a miry bog, a season of darkness and misery. And notice we don't see here how long he had to wait for the Lord. Psalm 42, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So notice, as David himself demonstrates, true saints do pass through the valley of the shadow of death. They do experience dry and desolate seasons. The saints must take great comfort in such times by remembering that it is God who holds us. John 6, 38 and 39, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Will Christ fail to do the will of his Father? Perish the thought. Christ will not lose those who are his. Through the desert, through the valley, through the dark night of the soul, he will hold us fast. While the longing for God described in our psalm is a true mark of grace, a true evidence of the work of the Spirit within us, this does not mean that a true believer will never experience dry and dark seasons. So with that said, what are we to do then when we recognize that our hearts are not where they should be? How do we go about trying to stir up this passion, this longing, this love for God? Verse 2, I believe, gives us an excellent answer. Look with me to the text. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, depending on how this verse is translated, he is either saying that the longing and desire that he expresses in the wilderness have now driven him to the sanctuary to behold the Lord, or possibly it is his remembrance now of having beheld the power and glory of God that have produced this desire in him. Now, given the fact we are told David wrote this psalm while in the wilderness, I think the second reading is the more likely one, and that is, as David is in the wilderness, he finds himself longing for God, thirsting for God, for David is a man who has looked upon the Lord in his sanctuary. He has beheld the power and glory of the Lord. Struggling saint, would you desire to see your passion grow? Do you desire to see your heart's affections for God grow, to love him more, to want him more? Then Christian, make it your aim 
to simply catch a glimpse of his glory. To look upon the Lord. To behold his power and glory. To gain a great apprehension of who he is. His beauty, his majesty, his greatness. To taste and to see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. The battle is primarily a battle to see. And Matthew Henry clarifies, we cannot see the essence of God, but we see him in seeing by faith his attributes and perfections. These sights David here pleases himself with the remembrance of. Those were precious minutes which he spent in communion with God, and he loved to think over them again. These he lamented the loss of and longed to be restored to. Close quote. So when I speak of the battle to see, to see God, I do not mean that we would have a literal vision of what God looks like, although that would be an amazing blessing, and God can do whatever he wants. Uh, but we should not expect that to be the usual Christian experience, right? to gain a literal glimpse of the heavenly throne room. But what I mean by seeing God, as Matthew Henry explains, is that we would come to a fuller, heartfelt understanding of who God is and a deeper love for him as we encounter God through a variety of means. Right, so you think of what we refer to as the means of grace. Right? These are the avenues through which God blesses his people. The avenues through which we may experience him and see by faith. That is our prayer uh, every Sunday. We meet at 9.15 here. And that is our prayer every time that all who come would see God. Would, would get a glimpse of his glory. And so it is through all of these means that God has given, through preaching, through singing, through Bible reading, through meditation, prayer, the Lord's Supper, these and many more are means of grace through which God communicates more of himself to us so that the saints may, by faith, see the glory of God. Or if you think back of your own experience, perhaps you've been sitting in a sermon and were suddenly overwhelmed by the truth of who God is in a new way, right? You have caught a glimpse of his glory. Or perhaps you were singing a song, singing of the great truths, and you're suddenly overwhelmed with the truth that you were singing such that it moved your heart's affections and increased your love for God. That is catching a glimpse of his glory, or perhaps as you beheld the bread and the wine representing the body and blood of your murdered Savior who shed his blood for you, whose body was broken for you, and you, were come to, you came to a new understanding, a new appreciation of the gospel. That is catching a glimpse of God through the means of grace, the means he has given us. Although we will not see God face to face on this side of eternity, God is ready and willing to be found by those who seek him earnestly. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, 
and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Are you a Christian? The throne of grace is open to you every hour of every day. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, helping you to pray when you don't have the right words. Romans 8, 26. You have the word of the living God, the infallible word, sufficient to equip the man of God for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 17. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Brothers and sisters, you have what you need. God is ready and willing to be found by those who would but seek him. And I'm afraid that the reason we often see so little of him is because we do not really ask in our asking. We do not really seek in our seeking. <laughs> talking about this last night and Diana was teasing me and saying, it's like the kind of seeking we often do in just looking briefly and then moving on, she said, is the way that I look for things in the fridge. It's like, you have not really been seeking. You have not really sought the Lord. You have not really asked the Lord. You perhaps knocked once, concluded no one was home, and left. God is willing to be found by those who would ask, who would seek, and who would knock. Let us consider again God's glory is an infinite ocean, one in which we will bask in for all eternity. God is ready and willing to be found by those who would earnestly seek him now. Let us not be content with mere teaspoons drawn from this ocean. But let us pursue God through our daily and weekly practices. If you see that your heart is not where it ought to be, then seek to stir up your affections by encountering the living God through the means he has given. He is ready to be found. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Those who know the goodness, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God in this way, right, in the way David has described, they overflow with praise and thanksgiving. And here we see something that we try to emphasize in our teaching times. When we study God, when we dive into scripture and theology, seeking to expand our knowledge of God through his word, we are always mindful that our theology must lead to doxology. That is, our study of God must flow into worship of God. Learning of this great God, his attributes, his perfection, his nature, his character, his actions, his holy and righteous commands, all these things must drive us to worship, to ascribe glory to God. And if they don't, if we remain unmoved by such great realities, it can only be 
because we have not really understood them. Jonathan Edwards writes, If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. The reason why men are not affected by such infinitely great, important, wonderful, and glorious things as they often hear and read of in the word of God is undoubtedly because they are blind. If they were not so, it would be impossible and utterly inconsistent with human nature that their hearts should be otherwise than strongly impressed and greatly moved by such things. David, knowing the steadfast love of the Lord, knowing it is better than life itself, is moved to praise, to exalt the name of the Lord, to sing and to tell of his excellencies. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So here is the ideal that we must all strive for. Here is the ideal David has for himself. That this current state he's experiencing of desire for God, passionate longing, these worshipful reflections, his prayers that they would never fade from his mind or his heart. But that instead his entire life would be marked by worship to the one true and living God. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And we see as well, this is exactly what is commanded of every believer. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now we do this two ways. We offer our bodies to God, our whole lives to him as worship two ways. Firstly, by viewing even the seemingly mundane things in our lives as opportunities to glorify God through the way that we do them and think about them. All of life is to be aimed at glorifying God, honoring him, exalting his name. 1 Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See how all-encompassing this is. Whatever you do, do unto the glory of God. Offer your bodies, yourselves, your whole being, everything you are and everything you do as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And This is your spiritual worship. Everything we do can and should be done as an act of worship to God. So how do we do that practically? Well, we do this by praying to God, thanking him, being conscious of our attitude in everything we do, ensuring that we approach every task without grumbling, with a desire for excellence, asking him to bless whatever it is we are about to engage in. And as a side note, if your conscience does not allow you to ask God to bless whatever it is you're about to do, well, there's a very good chance that you shouldn't be doing that then in the first place. 
Secondly, to honor God with our entire lives, to live uh, with our whole lives as worship to him, we must establish regular rhythms of intentional and focused worship. Bringing our thoughts and intentions to be focused particularly and directly on God himself as we address him and commune with him. Daily, this means time in the word and in prayer and meditation. Means daily family worship, reading, praying, and singing together. Weekly, it means prioritizing the Lord's day. Coming to church every Sunday, one in seven. Worshiping with the saints, not neglecting the assembly, Hebrews 10, 25. We are to be so enamored with God, so convicted by his word, so full of love for him, that we do not simply obey these commands from a mere sense of duty, but like David describes, we are to be a people bursting with praise, overflowing with love for God. We have tasted and seen that he is good. His steadfast love is better than life itself. And so we want to be in the word. We want to be spending time in prayer. We are excited to worship God, to sing and pray and read with our families. Our heart's desire is to bless his name as long as we live. So let us do so with joy, gladness, and constancy. Verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The soul that communes with God, finds true fellowship with its creator, is a soul that finds him to be all-satisfying. David uses food as his analogy. If you've, ever, if you've ever had a wonderful meal, right, the choicest cuts of meat, in scripture, the fatty portions are often said to be some of the choicest cuts. I know that's not typically how we think of it. I often cut the fat off, but you see here, right, uh, the fatty portions, my soul be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So fill in for yourself whatever your favorite is. If you ever had the pleasure of the finest cut of steak, juicy, delicious, whatever that food is for you. David says that as rich food satisfies the body, satisfies the taste buds and the appetite, so also does communion with God satisfy the soul. Then we see that one of the amazing realities is that this soul-satisfying communion with God is not at all dependent upon the place we are in. Look to the text. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So notice for David that it is not only when he is near the tabernacle or in his special place of prayer, not only when he has his candles lit, his coffee ready, his Bible there and his Instagram picture taken, 
It is not only then that he can commune with God, but he says he finds the pleasure of soul satisfaction in God as he simply lies awake in his bed, thinking about the Lord, meditating on him. And this brings us back to the topic of meditation. This is a practice that Christians must recover. Now for me, growing up, the word meditation was typically a bad word, right? It's the practice of Eastern mystics is what we would picture. Guy sitting on a mat with his legs folded and making strange noises, right? Uh, And that form of meditation was rightly condemned in our circles and in our home. For that kind of meditation focuses on emptying your mind of all known thought, all conscious thought. But what you'll notice is that what David says here is essentially the opposite of that. Notice verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. And so the biblical practice of meditation is not emptying your mind. Rather, it is focusing your mind. It is bringing it onto something beneficial. The Puritan Thomas Watson defined meditation this way. It is a holy exercise of the mind, whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. I'll read that again. A holy exercise of the mind, whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. David is not purging his mind of conscious thought. He is directing his thoughts. Indeed, as Colossians 3 verse 2 commands all Christians, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. And so biblical meditation, therefore, is to take a truth and to chew on it, to ponder it, to mull it over and reflect upon it. I am convinced that the neglect of meditation is a large part of why our Bible reading frequently seems to profit us so little. We read the scriptures and the moment we finish, we move on. Right? Having checked off that box on our to-do list, we now get on with the next thing and the truths that we have read do not remain in our minds and frequently do not make it into our hearts. The same can be said of the sermons that we hear Once that final song starts playing, our minds have moved on. We're thinking about lunch or fellowship plans and often don't give a second thought to the sermon for the rest of the day. As Puritan Thomas White put it, it is better to hear one sermon only and meditate on that than to hear two sermons and meditate on neither. When we neglect meditation, We are like a person who takes out a fresh piece of chewing gum, places it on their tongue for a split second before spitting it out and moving on. Now, if you want to enjoy the flavors, if you want the breath-freshening effects of your chewing gum, you need to chew on it for a little while. You need to work it around to draw out the goodness So it is with the truths of God's word and his world. 
We need to chew, to consider, to dwell, to reflect, right? Work through the implications. Ask yourself, how does this truth apply to my life? Or what does this teach me about God or about the gospel? How does this apply to this area of my life or that area of my life? It is largely through meditation that these truths which we have heard with our ears and understood with our minds are given the opportunity to sink into and transform our hearts. If you desire for your Bible reading to be more profitable, if you want to benefit more from the sermons you hear and the books that you read, then take the time to meditate, to reflect on what you've learned. Thomas Watson put it, a Christian without meditation is like a soldier without arms or a workman without tools. Without meditation, the truths of God will not stay with us. The heart is hard and the memory slippery. And without meditation, all is lost. This is a vital Christian practice, one which we must recover. And as we see, this is not simply an optional thing for the hyper-spiritual people among us. We see the pattern displayed in Scripture and the practice even commanded by God for all his people. Once again, Colossians 3.2, an imperative, set your minds on things that are above. Think on things that are above. Direct your thoughts. Bring them there constantly. What is this but a call to meditate on the things of God? Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God commands us to be deliberate with our thoughts. There are certain things we must labor to reflect on, to bring our minds to again and again. We are to set our minds on things that are above, chew on, mull over that which is lovely, commendable, excellent, etc. So be intentional. If you can, set aside time for meditation between your reading and your prayer time. Thomas Manton wrote that meditation is sort of a middle duty between the word and prayer, and it has respect to both. The word feeds meditation, and meditation feeds prayer. We must hear that we not be erroneous, and meditate that we not be barren. These duties must always go hand in hand. Meditation must follow hearing and precede prayer. Close quote. Chew and digest your spiritual food, Then go to God in prayer and pray for the application of these things in your heart and life. Meditation will enrich your Bible reading and your prayer life. Now, if you can't set aside time in your day, a block for meditation, then seek to redeem the time some other way. Perhaps on your commute to work, instead of listening to the radio, you can meditate on your time in the Word. If you have some mindless task during which you would ordinarily be daydreaming, labor to lift your mind to the courts of heaven. However or whenever you do it, labor to set your mind on the things that are above. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For the redeemed heart, none of this is a drudgery. True fellowship with God satisfies the soul and causes it to overflow in praise with joyful lips. For God is glorious. It is a great blessing that we are commanded to pursue the Lord, to serve him with gladness, to delight in him. It is not meant to be a grand endeavor in pretending. Those who have encountered the living God and have glimpsed his glory know that God is, as David attests, glorious and soul-satisfying. Verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David looks back on God's past deliverances and he praises God. You have been my help. God has been there for David. He has rescued him and carried him. As young birds would hide under the shelter of their mother's wings, so also David says he draws near to the Lord and finds shelter and provision. The security under the shadow of his wings causes David to sing for joy. And brothers and sisters, do we not have reason to praise God for his past deliverances? For Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so may we too sing for joy, for God has been our Like David, we who are in Christ may look back on God's past deliverances, on his past grace and faithfulness to us, in saving us through his Son, in drawing us to himself, and in keeping and preserving us through all of our dark seasons. God has been our deliverance. Through the finished work of Christ, we have been delivered from the power and penalty of sin, We are now God's beloved children, and we live our lives in the shadow of his wings. He covers us, he cares for us, he provides for us. Let us sing for joy, let us cling to our God, let us grow in love for him and desire for him. May we pursue God and find him to be all-satisfying. Amen.